One Hope Church. Wonderful day to come and worship the Lord uh, together. Thank you that each and every one of you um, are here today. And we are going to continue our study uh, through the book of Acts. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. It's the history of the early church. And in this, we've seen the mission uh, that Jesus gave to his disciples uh, to be his witnesses, you know, to make disciples, uh, beginning in Jerusalem and then into Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so we've seen that progression uh, happen um, as we've worked our way through the first 11 chapters. And this morning, uh, we're going to continue um, with that, with some adversity that, that strikes the church and also um, the power of, of prayer in the church. And so what we are going to see in it to the, today, though, I believe, is just how well um, this lines up to what our hearts have been singing this morning, that you know Jesus is to be our, our everything, and that we are surrender ourselves and our lives uh, to God and to His will for our lives. And I think that will be very abundant as we read and uh, go through this passage this morning. I'm going to ask, though, that we go ahead and go to the Lord in, a, in prayer. And I'm just going to ask you to pray this morning and say, you know, Lord, I, I sing these, this song. I sing, Lord, you know, all to you I surrender. But I think if we're each honest, there's parts of our lives that we don't want to surrender. There's still th- there are things that we want to hold on to, that we want to say, Yes, I surrender, Lord, but not that. But not that. You know, and there's, there's things that we want to hold on to higher than we hold on to Jesus himself. And so, you know, we need to be praying, Lord, you know, help us, help our, you know, the, the, the spiritual desire that we have to get for our, our, our practical reality to get matched up with that. For our practical reality to be matched up with our spiritual desire. That truly Jesus would be everything to us and that we would surrender ourselves before him. And so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your goodness to us, God. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you've done everything for us and that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. To pay the price of our rebellion against you, God. And we know that you were victorious because... The grave could not hold our Savior and King, Jesus. And yet we often find ourselves, Lord, with divided lives where we say yes, and in the next breath we say no. And so, Lord, more and more we pray that the practical reality of our lives would line up with the desire of our spirits. We'd say yes, Lord. We are for you and all for you. Help us that be true and real in our lives. But Lord, we know we can't do that in our own strength. We can't do that by just trying to be better or trying harder to please you, God. But ultimately, we just have to surrender and to let you do the work in us and through us. So help us to surrender more to you today, dear Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's begin in Acts um, chapter 12. Um, We begin in verse 1. And it says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. 
And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread, so when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him out before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant or fervent prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the, gu- the guards before the door were keeping the prison. And so let's just stop there for a moment just to set that scene. We have a pretty intense situation here. Uh, this is Herod Agrippa. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was in power over this part of the world. Um, he wasn't the Caesar, but he's in charge of this part of the world um, with Israel and Jerusalem, Judea, all of that. Um, when Jesus was born, it was Herod the Great, Herod Agrippa's grandfather, who had decreed that all the children, all the males, you know, boys two years and under, would, would be slaughtered. Because he had heard that there was, you know, this rival that was coming, Jesus, ultimately. And so to eliminate that threat, to attempt to eliminate that threat, he had all the children two years and older murdered. Two years and younger, sorry, two years and younger. And so all the boys, you can imagine the weeping and sorrow that was in the land at that time. And now the grandson, Herod Agrippa, um, he says he lays violent hands on some who belong to the church, including James, the brother of John, and had him killed with a sword. Most likely he was beheaded. Um, and this was a, you know, a terrible thing. Now, who is this James? James is the brother of John, who was one of the three, along with Peter, who were the closest to Jesus. James, John, and Peter got to see some things that nobody else got to see. They were there you know, on the Mount of Transfiguration um, when, when the glory of Jesus was shown to them. And here he is executed. And so you can imagine the shock that that was for the, for the church, especially there in Jerusalem, as they're aware of what, is, what has happened. And now Peter has been seized. And I want to be very clear on something here. It says, he saw that it pleased the, the Jews. And, and really what he's referring to there is the, you know, the Jewish um, leaders. Uh, that, that's really what he has in mind. It's not um, any sort of anti-Semitic you know, statement that Luke is writing here. Because that would be kind of silly since Luke himself is a Jewish person. And Peter is a Jewish person. And you know, James and um, John were Jewish people. And so, you know, what he's, what he's trying to say here is that Herod Agrippa wants to have favor and an easy rule of the people. And so when he will do whatever he will, you know, he views as politically expedient, as politically in his best interests. Um, and this is one way of keeping revolts down and keeping problems down is, you know, when, when the leaders want somebody done away with, you, you know, you do what they want. You know, they're leaders of the community. And so this is a terrible thing that he is about and that he does. And so his plan is, you know, after the Passover, because, you know, we don't want to, again, you know, just like with, with Jesus, there's this kind of reservation of, of um, executing people during these, um, you know, religious days. And so he's like, well, wait till that's done. 
And then we'll bring Peter out and we'll make the people even more happy by executing Peter. And you think about just, you know, kind of the sad irony of that, of people who, you know, say they follow the law of Moses and who are, you know, say that God is for justice and, you know, and believe in doing what's right. And yet an enemy, though, someone they don't like, someone they view as a, as a threat, teaching different things, their immediate response is, let's kill them and get rid of them. And you see a, a, a real disconnect, a real disconnect between the, the faith life and the political life of you know, the Israelites, particularly the Israelite leaders in these times. And so he's in prison. And so what they have here are um, groups of soldiers. So they'll, what they'll do is they'll have two soldiers that are chained to him, two you know, guards at the door, and those are going to rotate every six hours. They'll be on for one watch, which is six hours. And every six hours, those people are going to rotate that responsibility, uh, which is reasonable. You don't be cha- you know, chained to a, another person for so long, <laughs> you know, if, you, if that's your job. Um, so that's what they do. And so that, that's what we stand here. And now, um, remember that he's going to be put on trial. And again, this is all going to be just a sham. You know, it's already been decided by Herod Agrippa and by the Jewish leaders, what's going to happen to Peter in their minds, what they're going to do. You know, and it even shows you still there's this, there's this need within the human heart, even when the person is in power, to justify their sin, to have some reason. Some, you know, well, our court found him guilty, and therefore we can do this thing to this person and walk away justified, viewing ourselves as right to have done what we've done. But obviously their justice is not God's justice. So we get um, to it there. And I have to ask the question, you know, what's going through Peter's mind? It says in verse six, you know, the night, so the night before Peter brings him out, it's the middle of the night. Peter is, is sleeping. Now there could be two reasons for this. One, um, you know, Peter has, has a, a framework from which he is, he is dealing, in which he sees, he sees the world. Um, and, and a lot of that is, is through what Jesus has taught him and told him. And so I want us to go back to John chapter 21 for a minute and pick up in verse 17. Because remember, Peter had denied Jesus at the night of the trial of Jesus, the, you know, that, with all that going on. Um, he's by the campfire and he denies three times that he you know, knows Jesus. He even says so cursing and, you know, with anger and, you know, vehemently denies that he even knows Jesus. And you know that he went out weeping and he was so, you know, ashamed. He was so ashamed at his, his, his time of weakness that though he had talked such a good game about being willing to die with Jesus and going to the end with Jesus. And yet when push came to shove, when reality hit, man, he was out of there. He was gone. He was gone. And so that is where we find Peter in John chapter 21 after the resurrection of Jesus, after as Jesus showed himself. And yet there's still this restoration in Peter that needs to happen because his failure was great. You know, and sometimes we want to minimize 
failure. But I think it's a lot of times when we minimize failure or, you know, we, we ultimately end up missing out on the full restoration of Jesus in that. You know, we want to make it all not, well, it wasn't that bad to begin with. Well, no, what Peter did was terrible. I mean, he failed as, as bad as a, as a follower of Jesus can fail in that he denied the Lord when trouble came. It was a, it was a, a, a dramatic and, I mean, for him, an earth-shattering failure. And he had to question in his mind, could he ever be used for anything good for the Lord again? And the Lord restores him and tells him, you know, three times, you know, feed my sheep. Lord, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Okay, feed my sheep. And he's telling him, you're still useful. You're still part of the plan. I still have a purpose for your life. Despite the failure, I still have a purpose for his life. So in verse 17 of John chapter 21, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wanted. And when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you or put your clothing on and carry you where you do not wish. And this he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had said this to Peter, Jesus said to him, follow me. Follow me. And so Peter has been promised by Jesus that when he is old, he will be executed. That that is his fate. That that is his future. That it is determined that this will happen. So you have to wonder a little bit as Peter wondering, okay, Jesus, now you told me I'd be executed. I know this is coming. But didn't you say when I was old and like people had to lead me by the hand and, you know, he might be like in his 40s now. And he's thinking, you know, I think I still got some years left, Lord, you know. Is it really my time already to be executed? So, so maybe he has a peace and he has a comfort that he knows what Jesus told him, he thinks back, he said when I was old, I trust, you, I trust you, Lord, you said when I was old, you're going to work something out here. But it's also possible, you think about Jonah on the boat when the storm is raging and they're all about to die. And where do you find Jonah? He's in the, in the hull of the boat and he's asleep. Because of all the, the, the stress, the physical, the mental, the emotional, the spiritual, he's just worn down to nothingness and he sleeps. And so it's middle of night. It's also quite possible that Peter here is exhausted in all of those ways just described. And we also know Peter has a propensity to sleep. We know that too. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus goes off, you know, pray a short distance from them and says, you know, watch and pray. Watch and pray and encourage, you know, and then he comes back. Couldn't you stay awake one hour? To pray. So we don't, I mean, Peter's a sleeper. You know, I mean, he, 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 likes, he likes to sleep sometimes. I mean, it seems that way anyway. Now, I'm not making light of it, but I think we look at it, you know, you see some of, the, some of the story, you know, throughout. And so maybe there's a combination of all three of those things going on. Maybe it's more so one than the other. And, you know, there's probably just speculation to be dogmatic about, you know, why exactly he's sleeping in this moment. 
but he's asleep. And so, let's continue with it. In verse 7, it says, Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And then the angel said to him, Gird yourself, or, you know, put on your outer garment, tie your sandals. And so he did. And so he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. And so he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. You know, he still thinks he's in some sort of state of sleep, but this is actually happening to him. And when they went past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. And so when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. And they said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it is his angel. And now Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door to him and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Just a real quick note about at the end there where he says, go to tell James. That's not the James that we just had you know, prior. This is probably James, the brother of Jesus, who became one of the leaders in the church in Jerusalem and its chief spokesperson, as we'll see um, later on in the book of, of Acts. Uh, so different, a different James. But let's notice a couple things here. One is that Peter had a hard time believing what had happened to him. You know, and there are sometimes, you know, you're having a dream, you're not sure if it's a dream or reality, you know. Um, but this had really happened to him, and he had a hard time. And the believers who were praying and asking, you know, for a miracle had an even harder time believing that God was answering their prayer and, and answering their prayer in, in the dramatic fashion that he, they did. And they even said, you know, to this young lady, a girl named Rhoda, you are beside yourself. They're basically saying, like, have you lost your mind? Peter's not out there. And she kept insisting, no, he's there, he's there. Like, well, it's his angel. It's like, you know, come up with anything you could think of. Um, there's a little bit of the idea that, you know, from Matthew 18.10, Jesus said, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Um, that's kind of where we get the idea a little bit of a, of a guardian angel. And, you know, I don't want to get too sidetracked, you know, by that. But the real, the main point is that, you know, the people were not expecting God to answer their prayer and not expecting God to answer their prayer in the way that he did. You know, they're thinking maybe something, you know, I think their, their thought is maybe something's going to happen at the trial. Maybe you know, Herod will have a, a change of heart or maybe somebody will step in or God will do something there and he'll be, you know, freed and let go. 
But they're not expecting an angel to come, knock Peter in the side and wake him up, which is kind of a little bit humorous. There's like, get up, dude. You know, wakes him up. And for the chains to fall off and for the gate to be opened miraculously by God and for Peter just to walk out of the prison as a free man. They're not expecting that kind of miracle. They have a hard time believing that their prayer is answered. And you can understand why they had a hard time believing that. I mean, they had just... They have been mourning the loss of James and the death of James. They're probably a little bit shaken. And, and with their prayer, there's probably some, some doubt that they're even praying according to the will of God. Because they may be thinking, well, you know, James has, has died and, and God allowed that. And, and perhaps, you know, it's, it's going to be within his will for Peter to die as well. So they're kind of, in some ways, while they're praying and asking for one thing, they're preparing themselves mentally and emotionally for a completely different thing. That at least there's some thought there, this could be it for Peter. And so we, we often do this, you know, same sort of, of thing. In, in our prayers. There, these people that are praying here are not abnormal. We can't look at them and condemn them and say, oh, look at their, their lack of faith. You and I know we pray the same way. We think about it the same way. Um, that's, and it's how we protect ourselves from disappointment. You know, it's, it's what we do. It's what we do. They're human. We're human. You know, we, we, we can understand um, some of that. But I'm going I'm to come back to that in a, in a minute. But I want to um, finish this scene and, and then come back to a little bit of that. I think it's, it's really important for us to consider and think about this morning. But I want to finish the story about Herod in verses 18 through 24. He said, Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. So again, you know, Herod, you know, his assumption is that this was not something that God did, but some plot, you know, to free Peter. Um, and that these men then would have, you know, have to die to pay for that. And so he, again, his justice, he doesn't have proof. But, you know, all the proof he needs in his mind is, I can't find Peter. And so that's his sort of justice. Let you know the type of person, again, that, that he is. Um, and it says that he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now, if you remember, Caesarea back in chapter 10 is where Peter went and met Cornelius and all the friends and family of Cornelius and preached the gospel and all those, you know, those Gentiles came to know the Lord. Um, and so Cornelius is, a, is still part of the governmental system there in Caesarea. So just keep in mind that he's, he and the other soldiers who came to faith and, the, and his household, they're all going to witness what is about to happen. Because <clears throat> it says, Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. But they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend, they asked for peace, because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So you all get the setup there. 
like he's angry at them. They got to send a delegation. They got to send people. You know, they make they do their political things to make to make nice. You get in good graces of an official. Um, Bla- this person Blastus, which is kind of cool name. What's your name, Blastus? <laughs> cool. I like it. Anyway, um, so verse twenty one. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in, in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. Now, again, keep in mind, Cornelius, the centurion and all the others are, are watching this happen. I'm, and, you know, in their minds, they've got to be thinking as the people are chanting the voice of a of a of a God and not a man. And they're sitting there. Well, we know who the true and living God is. And it's not our ruler. It's not the one who has authority over us. This Herod Agrippa, the first. But it's King Jesus. And they witness as God strikes this man. Um, Josephus, actually, the historian, actually records this. um, And it took about five days for Herod Agrippa to actually die a painful death. It's pretty pretty gruesome. But the, the Lord here is serious and is showing, he's making an example out of Herod Agrippa. Of who is to receive glory and who is not. And there's also, you see in it, I believe, some, the justice of God for what had happened to James. You know, for what had happened to those soldiers who were un, unjustly executed. And you see God's justice in this case being swift and not taking you know, a long time to come. Hope we don't have an issue with that. Um, God was certainly just to do to Herod Agrippa what God did to Herod Agrippa. Absolutely. But what does this all mean to us? I want to check verse 24. The word of God grew and multiplied. You have to imagine that Cornelius and the others were with him in the church back in Jerusalem. Everybody, as this, all of these events spread, the word of these events spread throughout the church and the world, that there is an encouragement and a boldness that comes from this. But it also comes with a reality. It comes with a reality that, yes, it may be that some die, and it may be that some are spared, but the word of God must be multiplied. The glory of God must go forward. That, and that's the, the key and important element of it. Because do we get in this whole thing that James and Peter are secondary to the glory of God? That they're actually, they're, they're key characters in the story, but they're not the focus and the key of the story, of any story. God is. And I think that there's part of us that doesn't want to acknowledge that. Because... We want to view Peter and, and James and others as we do ourselves, and we want to make it so that we're the, we're the focal point and the, the hero of the story or the most important character in the story. 
And, and it's a tough realization to come to sometimes that even in the story of your own life, you're not the most important. Even in the story of your own life, you are not the most important character. You are a secondary character in the story of your own life. If things are in their right order, where Jesus is king and Jesus is preeminent and Jesus is first and his glory is more important than your glory. His name is more important than your name or my name. And that's a big lesson for us to learn. A couple of other big lessons. When we pray, do we expect an answer? And what sort of answer do we expect? And, I, and you know, when we read the book of Acts, I think a lot of times people are, are you know, it's kind of a counterbalance, overly, um, overly cautious. And we say things like, you know, but Acts is descriptive and not prescriptive. Acts is a description of what happened, but doesn't prescribe for us what to do. Okay, that's true. But are we saying that as just an, as an excuse to not live in the expectation of the power of God on display in, in us and through us? I think a lot of times we use things like that as an, as an excuse for not exercising faith. We say, well, that was then, and this was a special time. And I mean, yes, all those things are true. Those are true statements. But don't then take those true statements and use them to marginalize that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that his power is available in our world today to his people. Don't marginalize the power of God in your life. But that's so often what we do when we read the scriptures. We say them, not us. Then, not now. We marginalize the power of God. The truth is that we should be as bold as lions and as harmless as doves. And what I mean by that is that in our world today, so many times people who are followers of Jesus, we walk around timid instead of bold. Timid. We walk around afraid that we're going to be slaughtered. And maybe that's not slaughtered physically, maybe that's slaughtered mentally in the academic world or in you know, the place of your work. Or emotionally. Or spiritually, you won't be able to handle the pressure of you know, an intense walk with Jesus. And so there's this timidness. That comes to us. Now, I want to be very clear. The answer is not the flesh. The answer is not putting on this show of bravado that says, you know, for men, that says, well, I'm a man. And I'm going to show you that I'm a man. And so I'm going to say what I want to say and when I want to say it and how I want to say it. And you're just going to have to deal with it. That's not what we're talking about. And we're not talking about a, you know, a feminism you know, a militant feminism that comes out, you know, comes out and just says, well, I'm a woman and I'm going to show you that I'm a strong woman and I'm going to show you that I can get what I want when I want, how I want. Because all of those things are male or female. Those are the things of the flesh. 
But in the spirit, we have a, a, a meekness, which is strength, but it's a restrained strength. And it knows when and how to use his strength. Because Jesus used his strength and his power when he drove the money changers out of the temple with a whip. And, he, and he, so he knew when he needed to exercise it and when he needed to restrain it. Because when he was at the cross, we better believe he restrained his power. Because at any moment that he so desired and said any word, that whole scenario was different and done. So with that, knows when to stand and when to die. With that strength and with that boldness, knows when to, to take a stand for something and when to allow another to you know, exercise their quote-unquote power over and not to fight, to lay down one's arms. And knows when to do those things and how to do those things and the power of God and then communication with the whole, with the Holy Spirit. And so that's why I say we have to be bold as lions and harmless as, as doves because people need to need to understand that followers of Jesus should never be viewed as a threat because we're not going to to just take by force to get what we want or what we view to be right. But we understand that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual darkness. And that those battles aren't one in the flesh, they're one in the spirit, and they're one on our knees as a prayerful church. <coughs> I was asked this week, because as we look at the book of, of Acts... And we see the life of the early church, and we, can, and we contrast what we see of the church in the New Testament, what we see of, quote-unquote, the church today. And I was asked this week, you know, how did we get here? How did we get where we are today, where things seem to be in such disarray and a, a misalignment with the things that God cares about? And the reality is... Even for the true church, people who like really believe in Jesus, that a lot of times we've made some bad trades. And we've made those trades throughout history, in the history of the church. And this is a working list, but here's some things that, we've, that we trade. We trade worship for entertainment. And I'm not talking about just entertainment in the world, I'm talking about entertainment in the church. We trade worship for entertainment. We trade true men and women of God for great communicators. We trade discipleship for casual acquaintances. We trade the true church of Jesus for big crowds. We trade prayer for gossip. We trade sacrificial giving for materialism. We trade hard work for quick solutions. We trade spiritual power for pop psychology. We trade evangelism for popularity. We trade the mission of Jesus for political gains or some other agenda. And we trade the joy and peace of Jesus for what makes our flesh happy in the moment. There are just some of the trades we make. You can probably add to that list. You can probably write a better list. Go for it. But ask the question in your own life, what do I trade? 
Because it's really easy to be critical and to say, and, and we do have to have a, a, you know, a discernment about us that says, hey, the church has made these trades and we got to get back on track and we can't make those trades. Like we need to do that. But does it really make a difference to identify those things if we don't identify the trades that we're making in our own hearts and our own minds? And like, what of those am I guilty of? What other trades have I made and that I continue to make that inhibit my experiencing more of the presence of God and the power of God in my life and fulfilling the purposes that God has for my life? What are the bad trades that I'm making? And why am I making those? A lot of times our trades come from our desire for safety. And we see that in our world today, even in a political sense. And I'm not going to you know, get all, undo all that right now. But we see that the number one priority of safety in our lives is a trade that we often make for the mission of God. And the reason for that is because we've traded faith for fear. Traded faith for fear. Another, we're so afraid of what may happen. And so we trade faith for fear. So we make all these wrong trades and then we wonder why something's still missing. We wonder why we're stressed. We wonder why the, the, you know, the tweaks we try to make and changes we try to make in our lives don't fulfill that feeling of hollowness that we still have. While we still feel like we're running around with chickens, like chickens with our heads cut off. This isn't the prettiest mental image, but you know, it kind of works for this. But the reality is, you know, we can, we can do whatever we want to try to solve our problems. We can do whatever we want. But until Jesus is actually and continually sitting on the throne of our hearts, we'll just keep on chasing the wind. Until he's actually and continually on the throne of our hearts, we just keep chasing the wind. You're just looking for another thing that's going to satisfy that's going to fix, that's going to do whatever for us. Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.25, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So yeah, there's a certain element there that even as he's, ta- he's using physical analogies to talk about a spiritual reality, but that same, you know, that same type of discipline that's needed in the physical realm is needed in the spiritual realm. And if we don't have that discipline, then that's when we trade faith for fear and we trade, make all these other types of bad trades. Make all these other types of b- bad trades. It's a, it's a lack of discernment and discipline and being consistent in our 
surrender. And again, I have to keep going back to that because so many times we just want to figure out a solution and we just want to work harder at something to fix it. And again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm certainly not preaching against hard work in our lives. Don't get me wrong. But if we want what only Jesus can give, the only way to receive that is surrender to him. The only way to really receive it is a greater surrender to him. So the other thing that we have to do with all this is that we have to stop calling God unfair. And that means we stop, have to stop comparing lives. Think about that for a moment. Because in that same conversation with Peter, on the beach that he has with Jesus, once Jesus told, tells him that when he's old, he's going to be executed. He says it in con language, but that's the reality of what he's saying to Peter. When you are old, you will be executed. Church history, our understanding is that Peter ultimately was crucified upside down. That's our basic understanding of the scenario. What happened to him? And then, but Peter says, But Lord, what about this man? He's talking about John, who wrote the Gospel of John. But what about, what about my closest companion? You know, other than, other than his allegiance to Jesus, I mean, he has a, a love for John. I mean, they're together. He says, what about him? And Jesus said to him, If I will that he will remain till I come, what is that to you? What is that to you? What Jesus says to him. Because we have this misconception that for God to be fair, then every believer should receive the same thing. We think that's, you know, every believer then should have the same, you know, the same everything, the same spiritual gifts or the same abilities of those gifts. If, if God gives one person, you know, this measure of faith, he should give the person next to him the same measure of faith. And if he gives this one person, you know, this, this gift of generosity, he should give the person next to him the same gift of generosity. And what this breeds in us, this misconception that for God to be fair, he has to give us all the same things. What this breeds in us is, is two things. One, jealousy of a brother or sister. And two, an accusation against God. God, you're not fair. And, and both of those ideas are, are disastrous for our, our walks with Jesus. Do we need, we need to understand, and each one of us needs to understand, that God's plan for your life, for your best life, is for you to glorify God. That that's God's best plan for your life, is for you to glorify God and how God has seen fit for you to glorify Him. And that's it. And so it doesn't matter what 
you know, for your life and, and your decisions and how you follow Jesus, it doesn't matter how God has called your friend or your, or your neighbor or the other person in, another person in the church. That's kind of irrelevant at a certain level. It's like, yes, we're all in, I mean, and, and we have to balance, right? Because we're all in this together. We're part of the church. We're a community. We're, throughout the New Testament, we're told, love one another, care for one another, be mindful of one another, share with one another. But we're not told to live one another's lives or to live life like one another. We're told to follow Jesus. We're told to follow Jesus. And so that's going to look different for different people. What we, you and I have to make sure of is that we don't use the lives of other people as an excuses for not following Jesus ourselves. And each person has the, to determine what following Jesus looks like. You know, what that means, what the implications are of that in their lives. So for, for one of my very best friends on this earth, John, it means that his family and his children are in a very dangerous place on the earth. And that's what God has called him to do, and he is being obedient to follow Jesus as best he knows how, even if that's at great risk. Now, it doesn't mean God's called you to go and do the exact same thing. God call, might call you to have a, a pretty average you know, job and do pretty average you know, things, but... To be crazy bold at your job and crazy generous through what that job provides you. But what we have to understand is that whether God calls you to some crazy dangerous place or to a place of extreme and utter poverty, or if he calls you, you know, wherever and to do whatever, or to to be right where you are doing right where you're doing, what we can't do. Is to do that halfway. What we can't do is to allow the people in our lives to still not hear about Jesus. Wherever we are. What we can't do is afford to live without faith. And without a, a radical acknowledging that Jesus is king. Regardless of the implications for our own lives. But I'm afraid that the biggest trade that we've made of all the trades and all the whole deal is that we've, we, and it's not even so much a trade, it's just a halfway. We've said, you know, Jesus, I love you and I want you to be my savior, but just don't ask me to do anything for you that I don't already want to do. You know, you be savior, I'll still be king. Can't we just do it like that? And, and, you know, please try to tell me that that's not, at least some points in your life, your heart. Because I know it's mine, and I'm, I don't think we're going to be, we're not that different. And you can say, well, I've never viewed it like that. You know what the, the, the insidious part of it is? Is that, especially in the United States of America, most believers will have that assumption and never have it challenged. Their assumption will be that Jesus can be my savior, but he does not have to be my king. It won't be spoken. It won't be said. 
But it will be lived day after day after day. And it will never be preached against. Because the leaders are doing the exact same thing. Living part way for Jesus. And that's why it's so hard to preach against it. It's because it's the natural propensity of all of us. I mean, do I want to preach against myself? Do I want to actually be most accountable because I'm preaching it is what the Bible tells me. You know, let not many of you be teachers knowing you shall receive a greater condemnation. So I just pile it, you know, do you, you know, do I just want to pile it on myself and say, whatever I say to you, it's double back to me. And that we want Jesus to be savior, but we all oh, so many times we don't want him to be king. Because then I have even extra. The Lord saying, OK, Chet, is it true? Is it true? But that's the problem in our nation. You want to know the big the, the big problem for the church. Is that people can can be part of the church. From birth until death and never have that assumption challenged. That you can just have Jesus as your savior. You don't have to worry about him being your king. Do what you want. Whatever you feel is good. You go with that. And what we have to acknowledge that if Jesus is really God, by default, it makes him king. If we say we believe what the word of God teaches, by default, Jesus is king. And the reality of it is, the reality of it is, That Jesus is still king no matter what. But the problem is when we don't acknowledge it is that we miss out on that experience of walking with him as king and enjoying the presence and power of God in our lives. Ultimately, the end of the day, end of the day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Like he's still going to receive his glory. He actually doesn't lose out in that sense. But we lose out. We lose out on the joy of being at the edge and having nowhere else to go but Jesus and to have him catch us. We lose out. We lose out on the joy of seeing that person pass from death to life through the sharing of the good news of Jesus. We miss out. We miss out on that experience when it's not emotionalism, but it really is just the presence of God all over you. We miss out. But remember, God is self-sufficient. He doesn't have, like, he, he's not at a loss if we fail to worship him or fail to be in his presence. He's self-sufficient. But yet, out of his love for us, he wants us to know that joy Because he does indeed love us, and he does indeed care for us, and he wants us to know his presence and his power. He wants us to to live as this, when he says, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? 
you follow me. And so that's ultimately what Jesus wants, is for us to stop comparing, to stop worrying about what God's purpose for someone else is, and for you to follow Jesus, for me to follow Jesus. Now, when we're in this, as long as I mean, we're here together, we do that together, right? You know, we, you know we're, that's another one of our trades. We're so individualistic here. So individualistic. But yet there is an individual element to follow on the Lord. We have to follow Him. If we do that individually, how does that play out? We follow Him better collectively. We follow Him collectively, we follow Him better individually. And what I mean by that is, if y'all are following Jesus 100%, and I'm tempted to not follow in that moment, well, y'all help pull me along with that. And so that's what we do for one another. It's part of why being part of the body together is so important. But the result, if enough of followers of Jesus are following him, really following him, I believe we see it in verse 24 of Acts chapter 12, the word of God growing and multiplied. I mean, it's ultimately God's work and it's his power that's on display. But yet, you know, we see throughout the books of Acts people who are willing to take Jesus seriously to be on mission with him. Not on their own mission. Not to have, you know, the mission of Jesus is like, well, this is 2% of my life. But in all that they're doing, and again, remember, most of them are just ordinary people working ordinary jobs, yet with an extraordinary purpose, an extraordinary mission. They were in that and on that together. So what does the Lord say to you as an individual this morning? I believe it's the same thing he says to Peter. Follow me. That's what he, I believe that's what he says to you this morning. Follow me. What does he say to One Hope Church? Follow me. Because as a church, we can, do what it, we can do what we do as individuals. Well, what about this church? Well, what about them? Well, they have this and that. Well, what's that to you? Well, they, they get to, you, Lord, you've given them these things, or this ministry, or these people, or this whatever. What is that to you? What is that to you? Because I'm tempted to play that same game that I do as an individual when I think about our church. But the Lord's, I believe the Lord's response back is, what is that to you? You follow me. And that's what we are to do as a church. He said, what does One Hope Church do? We follow Jesus. If we're not following Jesus, shut the door. Just shut the door. Oh, i got other things to do. Follow Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we praise you. Help us, Lord, in our re- reality of our lives as individuals and in a in church that your call, we know your call is to follow you and to be on mission with you. And so many times we either try to do that in our own strength or we come up with a completely different agenda that's not yours. And so, Lord, save us from ourselves. 
this morning we pray. Take away our fears. Take away those things, those barriers that hinder us. And even as the chains fell off of Peter, Peter did nothing. That this morning sin would fall off of our lives. Just by us saying, Lord, forgive us. We surrender to you and that those chains of sin would fall away. (coughs) Help us to walk out of those prisons as free people. Dear Jesus, you know our hurts and our pains. You know the disappointments we've had in the past. You know how we feel like everything that comes down the road is misery sometimes, Lord. So help us to trust you and to love you and to not Accuse you falsely, God. Thank you that you are with us and that you are for us. But, oh God, let us remember that you are the priority. That your mission is the priority. Your purposes are the priority. Being in your presence is our priority, O oh Lord. Help us, we pray, Jesus, your precious name.